Every Sunday we get the privilege of addressing God our Father as a congregation in prayer. We're going to do that right now. We take time to pray for our nation and our community. We take time to pray for other nations in the world, for other churches around us, and for ourselves. So we're going to pray for our schools in our uh, nation, in our community this morning. We're also going to spend the next number of Sundays praying through various nations where Christians in particular are under extreme persecution as the latest uh, world watch list, as it's called, has recently come out. We're going to pray through the top 10 nations, uh, starting with Somalia this morning, as well as just intercede on behalf of other churches and ourselves. So will you join me in prayer as we bring our hearts before our Father? God, we thank you that we can come and we can call you a Father who has given us many good things. I thank you for the nation in which we live, where we do enjoy so uh, many freedoms as well as so many resources, uh, the assumption that we can even have schools available for the children of our own children and, and children in our community to attend and be educated regardless of um, economic status, not just reserved for those who can afford it. What a gift and a treasure that is. Uh, and yet nationwide school is a real challenge, uh, whether it's making up 100,000 lost snow days and creative scheduling, uh, juggling thousands and thousands of students all over the place and transportation. Father, there are so many children of all ages being educated in this community, and I pray that you would bless with your sovereign hand the schools in our community, especially the administrators. Father God, the teachers who are involved in connecting with and teaching those students and all of the challenges that are faced in a public school classroom setting. We pray that kids, uh, that our schools would be safe, that kids would encounter men and women in their schools who care about them, love them, and make a positive developmental impact on their lives. But I want to pray especially for uh, many of the teachers here in our own congregation and other Christian teachers all around this city as they go to work every day, even tomorrow, seeking to make an impact within the constraints of a public school system. And I pray that you would give them the insight, the love and compassion for the kids in their classes to be able to know how to connect and how to make an impact for you. I pray that you'd bless them for their service. And Father, a nation with no schools is <laughs> one like Somalia. Just reading a little bit about that nation as it appeared on this list um, this past week, uh, Africa's most failed nation of many failed nations. So there's no central government to speak of, or no services, no schools, no significant police forces or protections. Uh, only those in power get to make their choices, and people suffer and die because of incredible war and man-made starvation and famine. Father, would you intercede in that country. The, just even the preliminary lists of things that are wrong in a place like Somalia is utterly overwhelming. It's hard for us to even wrap our minds around. And yet there are men and women right now today who are living in the midst of that, children who are born into the midst of that. And we pray for their safety. We pray that uh, you would bring about not only security and basic needs, health care, food, water, education, and so forth. We pray for the very few Christians who are in Somalia in threat for their lives because of Islamic extremism. And we pray that you would help them to learn the gospel accurately and participate in spreading it faithfully. God, strengthen them and protect them. And we want to pray lastly, Father, for the many Somali refugees that are actually right here in our own backyard. Uh, Portland being a significant relocation center for many Somali refugees over the years. And so I pray that as we encounter Somali neighbors and our kids encounter Somali students in their schools, that there would be great opportunity to build bridges of connection across cultural and language barriers and that we could love them with the name in the love of Christ. Father, I thank you for the churches that we are in partnership with. Uh, think of Grace Point Church over in Tigard this morning where uh, numbers of us as pastors gathered just this past week to have a lunch and reconnect with one another and talk about how we can serve our communities better. I thank you for Grace Point and for Steve uh, and Brian and Aaron, the guys over there, for them hosting that for us. And I pray they have a special blessing on that church this morning. That... Um, you would give them great unity in the midst of constant change. Uh, I know they've had some staff people leave and their children's ministry and a new person brought on. I just pray that that congregation would unite, even this morning, right now, as they're meeting in their building in Tigard and worshiping you, that there would be great unity around the vision of the gospel for them and that you would grant them very effective outreach into the Tigard community, drawing many people in and into faith in Christ. And Father, last but certainly not least, we want to pray for ourselves 
as Harvest Community Church in that same regard. I pray, Father, having just come off of this season of of Lent and Easter, looking back on last Sunday where we saw the great hope that the resurrection provides us, I pray, Father God, that you would help us to be a people who live out the hope of the resurrection every day, that our priorities as people would be increasingly aligned with your priorities in faith, that you, because of your death and resurrection, Jesus, have a plan for us and a sure future and hope for us. God, I pray that that would so permeate the lives of the members of this church, that it would affect how we live, what our priorities are, how we make our decisions, and as a result, our lives would put you on display. God, do that work in our midst for our good and your glory. We ask these things things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Uh, I should mention that since uh, communication cards seem to be the theme of the morning, if you do happen to fill one out, you can drop it off in one of the offering boxes in the back at the end of the worship service or just take it out to our welcome center after the service in the atrium. We would love to take that from you. It will likely have no effect on the length of sermons, but it would allow us to get in touch with you, and we would love to do that. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the people of God for His glory. In a, in a phrase, in a sentence, that's the mission of the church. <laughs> that's God's purpose. That's why we gather and assemble every Sunday and open up the Bible right now as we do at sort of the center point of every worship service. To hear from God, to think God's thoughts after Him, as has often been said. And we trust and pray that as we do so, God's Spirit will use His Word to change us. That's the only thing that can change us. Preachers can't change us. Our own willpower can't change us. Information in the Bible by itself does not change us. The Bible becomes the template in which the Spirit of God changes us to make us more like His Son. And so our practice at Harvest Community Church, as many of you know, is to take a significant section of the Bible, usually a whole book, and walk through it from start to finish, to seeking to follow the flow of thought over a number of Sundays and ask God to change us. Now, today, we're going to resume a look that we are taking at the Bible's uh, most famous book, uh, dare I say, most infamous book, and that is the New Testament book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Revelation is a book almost everybody has heard of, and there's lots of different opinions about. Uh, It's full of so much symbolic imagery that sometimes it can be very difficult to follow, and so some people get kind of turned off by that and sort of feel like, I'm not even sure I want, I'm not even sure that that book is understandable, or if I even want to make the effort to try to understand it, because there can be so many opinions about it and and so many debates about what it means that it's just kind of a turnoff to a lot of us. On the other hand, um, much of the symbolism and the imagery in the book of Revelation can sometimes be downright scary and frightful and intimidating. So for a lot of us, it's like kind of like, I'm not sure I want to understand it, even if it is understandable. Let me just go read the Psalms about the love of God or something like that. That's much more encouraging. But our goal as we have studied this book is to see that the book of Revelation indeed has a message that is not only understandable, but that it is and can be life-transforming for Christians, even in modern 21st century America. That's been our goal. So I mentioned a moment ago that we're resuming our study of Revelation. We actually began it back in the fall. Now, I know a number of you were here, uh, and in, just in case you weren't, here's what our plan has been. We've taken the book of Revelation in three sections. We did the first one in the fall, took a nice break for the Christmas season, to the second section in the winter, and now we've just finished a break during the Lent and Easter season. And so this morning we pick up the third and final piece of the book of Revelation. We're kind of headed to the home stretch here. We've got six more chapters to go. Uh, We will do those over the next several Sundays. We're beginning this morning Revelation chapter 17. So to kind of get us back into this, because for all of us it's been a little while since we thought about Revelation, Um, and, and especially if you haven't been with us since the beginning of the study, this will help you kind of catch up really quickly. Let me just make two quick points about what Revelation is doing and how it's doing it. First of all, the book of Revelation was originally written to seven churches in the first century, and it was talking about the difficulties that people in those churches were facing. Now, the rest of the fact, the majority of the book of Revelation is really designed to pull back the curtain, so to speak, to show these Christians what the spiritual reality is behind the physical uh, mundane experiences they're having in their day-to-day lives, good and bad. 
Here's what you're experiencing on the earth, but there's a larger spiritual reality behind it. The book of Revelation is trying to pull back the curtain and show us what that larger spiritual reality is that's taking place above and behind, as it were, the events that we normally see and experience in life. That's what it's trying to do. Now, how does it do that? That's the second point up here. It does it by the means of vivid and, and, and potent symbolic imagery. That's how the book of Revelation tries to get us to look up as it were, look beyond what we normally see and think and experience in daily life to understand that there is an unseen reality behind it. You can't see it, but it's no less real. The book of Revelation does this through symbolic imagery. The apostle John, who is the author of this in the first century, is describing images, uh, symbols that he saw and visions given to him by God. These images point to concrete historical realities, past, present, and future, These images are provocative, they are uh, sometimes gruesome and frightening, they are always vivid. And the reason is that God is trying to engage, not just inform the mind or engage the emotions, but to actually, although he's trying to do both of those things, but he's also trying to engage our imaginations so that we will see beyond the normal events of daily life. So Revelation is trying to help uh, Christians see what God is doing in the events of our lives and beyond them. Today's passage is a great example. Uh, Revelation chapter 17, uh, I'm going to read through pieces of it kind of as we go. I think that'll be the best way to make sense of this chapter this morning. Uh, It is part of uh, really a kind of three-chapter section, 17, 18, and 19. They all go together. Uh, Chapter 17 sort of sets a stage. Uh, We're going to see the description of two main characters. That's really the whole of chapter 17. The chapters 18 and 19, there's a drama that takes place on that stage, so to speak. And that'll be over the next couple of Sundays. So this morning, we're going to see a chapter of the Bible that focuses on two symbolic images describing two characters that point to a reality in the world. And we're going to look at what that reality is, how it would have impacted its original readers, and ultimately, how does that impact us today? That's where we're headed. So what I want to do is kind of walk, and I'm going to do this fairly quickly through that first part. What are the images that we see of these two characters? There's a woman, a symbol of a woman, and the symbol of a monstrous dragon-like beast, and they both represent something. And I want to move fairly quickly. There's a lot of symbolic imagery, and it would be easy to get lost in it. I don't really want to do that this morning. I want us to kind of see the larger flow rather than getting sort of lost in the weeds. And then we'll look at what the significance would have been for original readers, and really end mostly on what is its significance for modern readers today. So that's a quick look at where we're headed. If you're in Revelation 17, we're going to begin by looking at the first few verses. Let me read verses 1 through 6 for us. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with, whose, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. So he carried me away into the, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now we're going to get a description of the first character, the woman. The woman was arrayed or dressed in purple and scarlet. She was adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, and she held in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations." And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. Quite the image. Let me point out of, number of, uh, of the number of things we could say, three important things we learn about this woman and therefore what she represents. She doesn't represent an actual literal person. She represents a whole world system. Notice three things about her. First of all, she's very clearly identified as a prostitute. Now, I'm going to say right up, this is going to be a PG-rated sermon. However, the Bible's imagery is very vivid, and that's deliberate. We don't want to back away from or over-sanitize it, because God is trying to engage our minds and our emotions to make a point, not only up here, but also in the heart. She's identified very clearly as a prostitute. Now, adultery and prostitution are common images in the Old Testament, for turning one's back on God and worshiping idols. 
And that's the imagery that's being picked up here in the New Testament book of Revelation. Uh, Probably the best example of that would be the Old Testament prophet Hosea. God takes this prophet, Hosea, and he tells him to go marry a woman who is a prostitute and she's unrepentant. She gives no indication that she's trying to change her lifestyle. God tells his prophet, a man of God, to go marry her anyway. And he does this. And not surprisingly, she uh, continues in prostitution, therefore violating the sanctity of her new marriage. She commits adultery. And God's whole point in that is he's saying, this is what it's like for me as God to interact with my people. People who have pledged loyalty to me and faithfulness to me and they say they belong to me, but they go off and they follow their own desires, their own lusts, and they worship other idols. They say one thing, they do another, and to God, he says, that feels like adultery. That's the image that he uses. And so we see that image coming up here again in Revelation. Secondly, notice that she's incredibly wealthy. Uh, Verse 4 says that she is arrayed in purple and scarlet. Those would have been clothes that would have been much more expensive and and flashy. Uh, She's wearing designer duds, okay? This lady's got the ball gowns on the red carpet, and everybody's taking pictures and talking about how expensive is that dress, right? And she's not just expensive clothing, but she's just dripping with jewelry. She's got the bracelets and the necklace and the earrings and everything and and diamonds and gold and pearls that are just sparkling. She has made it. She has arrived. In other words, her spiritual infidelity has made her both rich and powerful. And we're going to see next week in chapter 18, verse 12, um, that the Bible lists many of these same items, uh, clothing of scarlet and, 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 and purple and, and gold and jewelry and pearls and so forth as the uh, commodities of first century commerce, trade. And so the basic idea, a, a picture is starting to emerge when you combine these two images. It's a picture of how pursuing wealth and the power that comes from successfully participating in the world's economic system can lead people away, can allure people, can entice people and tempt people away from worshiping God. That's the picture that's starting to emerge. Now, there's one more detail that we need to see. She is called at the end in verse 5, of all things, Babylon. Now, we're getting a mixing of metaphors, which has been very common in Revelation. First, she's a woman. Now, she's a city. The name of this woman is Babylon. Now, Babylon was a real place. It's in what's now modern-day Iraq. Back in ancient history, the Babylonian Empire was a dominant world empire. Now, by the time that Revelation was written at the end of the first century, the Babylonian Empire was long gone. The Roman Empire is reigning now. But historically, the Babylonians were the ones who had conquered the ancient Israelite kingdom of Judah. They had sacked God's holy city, Jerusalem, destroyed its walls, demolished its temple, completely undid, systematically undid everything that God's people were doing to worship God in obedience to God's word. The Babylonians were the ones who were responsible for annihilating all of that. And in the process, they massacred tens of thousands of Jews. It was a violent and bloody overthrow of everything God's people stood for. Now, the Babylonians historically were long gone by this point, but you see the Babylon becomes a fitting symbol in the mindset of the Bible then of any and every world empire that uses force to oppose and harm God's people as they seek to follow him. So, you put these three things together and the picture starts to become pretty clear. The symbol of a woman is depicting the way that wealth is often the means by which people are seduced to worship the idol of material prosperity and to reject or even actively oppose the worship of God. Now, that's the first half of the image, but there's more, because there's also a beast. Let's read on. In verse 7, the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? We're going to read down to verse 11 here. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. If you wonder what this beast is about, he says, I'm going to tell you. I'm just going to explain the meaning of the symbols. The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go into destruction. And the dwellers on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains, or hills, on which the woman is seated. 
They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other is not yet come, and when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, he is an eighth, but he belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Clear as mud? (laughs) It's kind of interesting. Revelation puts out all these symbolic images, and it doesn't usually interpret them for us. It leaves you to figure out the interpretation on your own, and most of the time that interpretation is pretty clear. There are a few times where we are told exactly what a particular symbol or image relates to, and in chapter 17, we're given more of those explanations than anywhere else in the book. He says, here's what what you're supposed to make of this seven-headed beast. I'm just going to tell you right now. So, briefly, again, three things about it, then we'll slow down and pull this all together. First of all, this beast is a beast that's back again. We've seen this creature before. Uh, We met him before back in chapter 13. He's described in exactly the same way. And recall that back then we pointed out that consistent with Old Testament imagery, the seven-headed beast of Revelation represents overt hostility by world powers, usually nations or empires, in real history against God and his people. So whether it's the ancient Babylonian Empire or the Persians or the Greeks or the Roman Empire, which is in power when John is writing, this beast symbolizes this power arrayed against the spread of the gospel. Now that leads to the second point. John in this uh, vision explicitly identifies the beast with Rome in verse 9. The seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman is seated. Uh, That is an unmistakable and undeniable reference to the city of Rome, which was the capital of the empire that was dominating the world at this time. Rome is the city on seven hills. It's still known that way. It's always been known that way. And it was known that way in antiquity. So this is a clear identification of this beast with Rome, the power that is dominant in John's time. And we saw in the first couple chapters of Revelation, Roman law demanded veneration and sometimes even worship of Roman emperors by this point in history. These guys were a little nutty, they were a little power hungry, and they had this weird habit of deifying themselves and demanding that they be worshipped as gods, sometimes with the force of law. Now that's a bizarre thing for us to think about as Americans, but that's what was happening back then. And an emperor like Nero, who had recently come, he was dead by the time John wrote this, but he'd only been alive a few years earlier, had used the power of the Roman state to persecute and even kill numerous Christians. And so the Roman Empire is being pictured as this anti-Christian, seven-headed beast that is actively uh, persecuting the people of God. That's why the spiritual reality behind the difficulties that Christians were experiencing. Do you see how the imagery works? Now, one more point. Although John identifies the beast as Rome, it's not only Rome, it recurs over and over again. Did you hear all the language in there about past, present, and future? This beast was and is not and and, and is yet to come, and everybody's like really surprised by that. And this echoes some of the similar language in verse 13. Uh, If you were here a few months ago, or a few weeks ago, when we looked at that chapter, you may remember that verse 13 said the seven-headed beast had a fatal wound that had been healed. We talked about how bizarre that is because a wound can be like either fatal or healed, but it can't be both. Just think about it, right? <laughs> but, but that's the point of, of the imagination. The Bible's saying, yeah, it had a fatal wound. The beast dies, but then it was healed. It comes back again. And it's shocking to people. Here's, it's a picture of, of the fact that these world empires come again and again and again throughout history. As you saw in the Old Testament prophets, so you see it in the New Testament as well. This isn't just simply one nation or one empire at one time, but all world powers that rise and fall throughout history and oppose God. So in other words, Rome is the new Babylon. That's that's what the Bible is saying in the language of the first century mindset. Rome is the new Babylon. It's yet another one. And it's going to eventually go away again, and there will be others over and over and over again until the Lord returns. That's the point of verse 8's statement. It was and is not and is about to rise. These empires rise, they dominate, they eventually fall, and just when you think they're gone, another one arises in a new form and does the exact same thing. So, a lot of detail, rapid fire. Let's pause for a moment. Try to pull all this together. Do you see the picture that's starting to emerge, emerge with this woman riding on the back of this beast. She's riding it like a horse. It's supporting her and lifting her up. It represents world powers that are opposed to God. She represents the seductive influence of economic success. 
The scene is one in which the dominant ruling power of the day, which is the Roman Empire in John's case, uses not only its legal and military might, but also economic power to draw many people into opposing God. That's the scene that's being pictured here with this vivid imagery that's designed to stamp an image in our heads so we remember that that's the world system in which we live. And that would have been the world system that the first century Christians were really struggling with. They've got this dominant ruling power and it's using not only military but also economic influence to draw people into the worship of God. Think about the context in which they lived. Uh, We talked about this quite a bit the first couple chapters of Revelation. Don't have time to go back over all of it, but just a couple highlights to remind us of some of the things they were facing. Emperor worship we've already alluded to. They were under political and social pressure, Christians in the first century Roman Empire, uh, more so in some places than others, to literally bow the knee to and, and acknowledge the supreme deity of the Roman emperor. Well, that's impossible for a Christian. I can only bow my knee to one person and one person only, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and yet my government is demanding that I worship a false god. Even if it's just an external show, I can't do that in good conscience, so I now have to pay the price. You see, that's the pressure they were facing. But there was also economic pressure. You may remember what comments we made about the trade guilds that used to operate back then. In this case... um, Many times they would uh, have, you know, whatever, a, a, a trade guild, we don't really do this anymore, of, of, of like, say, people who are making clothing or, or coppersmiths or, you know, whatever your particular trade was. Maybe you had a, you had a business and, and that was, you made clothing or, or you were a coppersmith and you were selling your goods, that's how you supported your family. Well, there would be a, a trade guild, but the, the problem from a Christian point of view was twofold. First of all, in order to have a business in many of these Roman cities, you had to be a member of the trade guild in good standing. You couldn't just go open up a shop and and do kind of your own thing. You had to be a member of the trade guild. Now, the other problem was that these trade guilds often had patron deities associated with them. There would be a god of the, you know, clothing makers guild or the coppersmiths guild or, or whatever it was. And that was kind of ancient history that they had just carried forward. And often these guilds would get together and they would throw big parties and lavish uh, company uh, picnics, so to speak. In which point there would be often um, very immoral and unethical, from a biblical point of view, activities that took place to venerate and, and, and honor the patron god of the trade guild. And if you're a member of the guild, you're expected to attend and honor the god of the coppersmiths or whatever. Well, again, as a Christian, how can I do that? How can I go get drunk or even commit sexual immorality as an act of worship to a god that doesn't exist when God has forbidden worship and God has forbidden drunkenness and sexual immorality? I can't participate in that. Now, could you imagine, though, this is hard for us as Americans, could you imagine being in a place where you had to or you lose your job? And your reputation is tarred and feathered, so you may not just be able to go get another job, at least not that easily. What if your family's livelihood depended on whether or not you would show up at one of these feasts? That was the kind of pressure that they were under. The woman riding on the back of the beast. Do you see the imagery? Do you see how it works? The bottom line is there's an issue of allegiance here that the book of Revelation is tapping into. It's discussed elsewhere in Scripture. Colossians chapter 113 is probably the most clear statement where it says that when you become a Christian, what that means is your allegiance has changed. And it uses the language of a government. The Bible says God has delivered us as Christians from the domain of darkness, the rulership, the authority, the nation, as it were, of darkness. And he has transferred us to the kingdom, another nation, another rule, of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Do you see the imagery? If I'm a Christian, I used to belong to and submit to and follow along with the spirit of this world, but now that I'm a Christian, it means my allegiance has changed, my whole citizenship has changed. That passport is shredded. I've got a new one from a new country. I belong to a completely different kingdom, and I submit to and I follow a different Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, not the godless spirit of the age. Like that special effect? I planned that. (laughs) No, I didn't. So this creates a real tension now for these Christians. Certainly in the first century they would have felt that. But you know what? We feel it as well, don't we? The same thing happens again and again and again and again throughout history, whether it's overt use of uh, military or legal force against um, 
the pursuit of the gospel, and we talked a few weeks ago about how there are still nations today where it is outright illegal for you to be a Christian or to tell other people about Jesus. That still happens. And often it is also, uh, pressure is also exerted against the spread of the gospel through economic means, a slightly more subtle but no less effective method. Our consumer society today, thank God we still have the legal right to be Christians and to assemble in a church like this and not have to worry about it. And that is a tremendous blessing and freedom. But that doesn't mean there's no pressure on Christians, is there? Many times today, our consumer society is one in which career and money are often used as leverage to get people to toe the line of current social beliefs. You can believe whatever you want, the privacy of your home and the privacy of your house of worship, but you keep all that there. When you're out in society, you toe the line or you will pay the price. Here's how it works. You want the goods, you want the job, the position, the prestige, the paycheck, then you get in line with the value system. And if you refuse to get in line with the value system, you don't get this. That creates incredible hardship. A really clear and sort of overt example of this took place just a few years ago. I mean, how many of you remember the name Brendan Eich? A few nodding heads, especially those of you maybe in the tech industry. Uh, Mr. Eich was a uh, uh, member of uh, the Mozilla Corporation, which is uh, best known for developing the Firefox web browser that so many of us use, among other things. Uh, he eventually was promoted to become the CEO, but... Right after that promotion, it came out that he, uh, several years earlier, had made a small $1,000 donation to California's Proposition 8 campaign, which was an effort to block the legalization of gay marriage in the state of California. Very contentious issue, uh, very much something that was against the sort of general spirit of the age. Well, all he had done was simply give one small donation to that campaign, but that was enough. Gay rights activists went nuts, plastered stuff all over social media, Huge firestorm. The furor was such that eventually Ike found his position untenable and he resigned. And the message was very clear. It was a signal to any and every aspiring business executive in our nation. You want the prestige and power and money that comes from being a high-ranking official in a big corporation? Then you better get in line with modern, secular, progressive values. And if you don't, we're coming after you. How could you not feel pressure from something like that? Even if you don't want to use this position as a a way to to, to trump Christian values or something, you just want a job. doesn't matter. There's often pressure to conform or you don't get in. Now, many times it's not quite that overt. Uh, Most of us don't have smear campaigns executed against us on social media. Maybe you simply face the requirement to work long hours that will keep you away from your family or your church lest you lose your position or your opportunity for advancement. The pressure can come in so many forms, overt, less so, really hard, less so, but it's there. It's there. Now, obviously, a quick word of balance here. Working in a secular environment is not the problem. Of course not. It's actually a good thing to have a job and to work hard and be productive even in a secular environment. And it can even be a redemptive thing. Of course that's true. All I think the book of Revelation is trying to get us to think about, if we're going to take the imagery of chapter 17 and apply it to our lives, is to recognize that while it can be a good and even redemptive thing, it is not a neutral thing. It is fraught with peril. For the Christian, there is always a tug to live out the values of a different world system. But we belong to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. How do we sort out that tension? Because true success in almost any economic system almost always requires that one get in line with the dominant values of the culture. So here's the question. Do you feel pressure, either from your work or from some other source, as a Christian, to compromise your devotion to the Lordship of Jesus Christ for either economic or lifestyle or career reasons. Have you ever felt that? Probably a better question would be, how and when have you felt that and to what extent? Because almost every Christian has at one point or another. 
Now, at this point, the Bible has led us to just crack open a huge can of worms that can go in so many different directions. And it would be impossible for one person in one sermon to run down all those roads with us. So I won't even try. Instead, here's what I want to do. As we kind of turn the corner in terms of how this message and this imagery of Revelation impacts us and kind of head for home here, let me, let me suggest a few diagnostic questions, as it were. I figured some of you engineers would like my hip lingo. Did you catch that? Okay. A few questions to think about your own life, your own situation, especially if you're here this morning, you're saying, I'm a Christian. I do belong to Christ's kingdom. He is my Lord. I want to submit to him. Here's a few things to consider and think about. I want to offer us three questions. First, does a given opportunity or job, this doesn't all have to just be job-related, although it often is, a job or, or an opportunity, a chance to move somewhere else geographically, whatever the issue is, does uh, taking that opportunity require me to compromise what I would consider to be a core commitment to God or my family or my church? Does it, allow, does it require me to compromise a core commitment in order to make that work? It's a good question to ask before you decide whether or not to head a direction that you may have an opportunity to head. Kind of a follow-up to that on a little bit more of a, a, a personal and, and kind of heart motivation level. Um, if I were to lose this, whatever it is, opportunity, activity, job, dream house, whatever the thing is, if I were to lose it, could I live with that? Could I live with it? Not necessarily saying I shouldn't take the job or shouldn't make the move, but one good thing to think about is, what if I didn't? Like, am I okay with that? Am I okay getting passed up for a promotion or not getting my dream house or not getting my dream job? Like, could I, could I live? You, you see, this question is really designed to, to, to ask about heart motivations. It's designed to assess whether I'm taking good things and potentially elevating them into ultimate things which is Timothy Keller's way of describing what idolatry, the worship of idols, really means. It's when we take good things, Keller says, and we make them into ultimate things. A job is a good thing. A career is a good thing. Activities and events are, are good things. Uh, having a house to live in is a good thing. These are all good things. The danger for the Christian is when they become ultimate things. How do they relate to my commitments to family, to God, to church? And have I potentially replaced them? And maybe one final one, and this is the one I want to emphasize the most for our purposes this morning. Have I talked about my work demands or job opportunities or moves or lifestyle changes or whatever this opportunity is in front of me? Have I talked about that with other mature Christian friends or sought the counsel of pastors or the elders of my church before I make such large choices about my life? Our culture would generally assume that you're not going to do that. Uh, you're running your life, you make your decisions, and if you've got an opportunity, you should take it. You don't talk to anybody, you just report to them afterwards, and they're supposed to celebrate with you. <laughs> but the greater part of wisdom, I think, in Scripture would say, if you're a Christian, it's probably worth inviting somebody else into that process before you decide. Now, we're all responsible for our own lives before God. We're going to ultimately make the decision. But how unwise are we if we think we're smart enough to make that decision in isolation, to evaluate our own hearts with pure objectivity? Everyone needs advice and input and counsel from trusted, mature friends. Just to live life well, just to sometimes do our jobs. I, I think at times in just the last year, I, I was flooded in preparing for this morning with examples recently where even as a pastor, and I've been doing pastoral ministry for a while, I'd, I'd like to say that there's, there, there's fewer and fewer things that really surprise me in ministry anymore. I I've, I've, probably haven't quite seen it all, but I've seen a lot, you know? But I'd also like to think of myself as somebody who's intelligent and competent and wise and can handle it and do my job well, which disinclines me to talk to other people. 
every now and then I run into a situation where I'm like, whoa, this hasn't happened before. Uh, not long ago, I just ran into a situation like this where um, I wasn't exactly sure quite the best way to respond to a particular issue was. I got together with another friend of mine who's also a pastor at another church, and I said, you don't know any of the people involved, and you don't know anything, so let me just tell you. Here's the situation. Here's what I'm thinking. I could see it going this way. I could see it going this way. Pros and cons. I'm not really sure what the best way for me to handle this is. What do you think? And we talked through stuff together. He came up with a couple of thoughts that just immediately clarified in my mind what the issues were. Cut through a week and a half of fog. One conversation, I'm like, that's helpful. Thank you. Another time I can think of, uh, again, a little while ago now, but facing a situation for myself as a pastor where I was really clear what the Bible taught. I was not at all clear how it applied to a particular situation that was very complex. And I'd never quite dealt with anything like it before. And again, wrestled through it, prayed through it, was not completely clear which way I should go. I brought it up at one of our elder meetings here at Harvest. I said, guys, I need you to help me think this through to the other elders. I'm like, I don't get that. Here's what the Bible teaches. That's pretty clear. I don't completely see how understanding all this stuff, you know, that tells me, should we go this way? Should I go this way? How do I respond? And they said, oh boy, yeah. As I explained the situation, like, I get it. That's hard. We prayed about it. We talked. And after a while, eventually a consensus kind of started to emerge amongst the six or seven guys in the room that like, based on everything we know and what the scripture says, this is probably the wisest course of action. It's like, thank you. That's what I needed and that's exactly what I did. How, what, a, what a gift that is to help me think something through that I can't completely understand on my own. Or at the very least, what a gift that misery loves company because if Jesus says to me one day, what the world were you thinking? At least I could say, well, it was Jim and Brent and Roger's fault too. So I mean, <laughs> it's great. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm kidding. Mostly. Uh, <laughs> we all need that kind of counsel. And that's just the ongoing reality of life. Now, what about a situation when you're considering a significant change in your life? Maybe, maybe it's a career move. Or something else, uh, participation in a, in a sport or an activity that will, will require you to be away from your regular commitments to your family or your involvement with church, schedule-wise, for extended periods of time. Seek counsel from mature Christian friends and or church leaders before you make that decision. Because you see, when I stand to benefit materially from a decision that I'm about to make, I'm probably the least objective person on the planet when it comes to that decision. What a gift it is to have somebody else who's with me and for me, and I know them and I trust them, say, have you thought about this? What about that? Because maybe I have, maybe I haven't. Would I be humble enough to invite people into that process and say, what do you see as the pros or cons? What questions do you think I should ask with this? Help me think this through before I decide. Maybe it's a geographical move you're considering, either for job reasons or just lifestyle reasons or whatever. But that move is going to take you away from regular participation and fellowship in the church that you've been connected to and you're growing in which would hopefully be this church for most of us. If you're genuinely hearing the word of God taught and you're building relationships with other Christians that are contributing to your spiritual growth and you move away from that, what will be the impact on your life? It's hard to know, but I gotta tell you, as a pastor, I've known many, many people over the years who have left either this church or other ones for perfectly legitimate, just geographical move reasons and some of them land in other great churches and do really well and I celebrate that and others really, really struggle. Is there a Bible-based and gospel-centered church in the new area that you and your family can continue to grow and thrive in? Do you know that? Should you know that before you decide to move? Should that be at least part of, of the decision-making process? How does participation in a gospel-centered Bible-believing church Compare with an extra bedroom, open acreage, or another $20,000 a year. Friend, if you had to pick between the two and you're a Christian, which one is most important to you? But see, those aren't the values of the dominant culture. Does this mean you should never move or never take a promotion? No, that doesn't mean that at all. But would we be humble enough to invite counsel in to say, am I being lured into something here by the dominant powers of the day that I'm not even aware of? 
These are the kinds of questions that a Christian, I think, who takes Revelation 17 seriously will ask and invite people into. And could I just say one special note before we kind of turn for the final stretch here to our students, most of whom are sitting over here, so I'm going to stare at you guys for a minute. But a few of you are scattered around and you think you're dodging me, but you're not. (laughs) Don't think that this is just an adult conversation that doesn't affect you. We're talking about jobs and careers and mortgages and houses and like maybe that's in my future, but I, you know, that's not my world right now. This does affect you every day and every minute. Where is your relationship with Christ at? Think about your own schedule. What am I going to participate in? What am I going to get involved in? Are there required rehearsals and practices and events that are going to take me away from time that I would normally spend with my family or time when I can invest with my other Christian friends in church? Are there alternatives that would allow me to be involved in that activity or sport and not compromise my commitment to being together? The Bible says don't forsake assembling together. Don't bail out on connections with your church family. You will die spiritually. You will die. How do you make those decisions? Those are great things to talk to your parents about, for sure. It's also a great thing to invite your pastors, your youth leaders into as well. And maybe an extra specific and special word to so many of you (laughs) who are juniors and seniors. Because I know you guys and I love you and I've watched you grow up from little fourth and fifth grade ragamuffins to young men and women who are thinking about college and life after high school and making big decisions. Where do you go? What do you do? What do you study? How do you even make that kind of a decision? Don't just think about the prestige of the particular program that that has a course of study or the, the relative cost of attending that university or that trade school versus another one. Important things to think about. But think about how the impact on your spiritual life is. Is there a church close to the school where you're planning to go within reach? And reach isn't going to be very far if you don't have a car. Maybe it's a little further if you've got a car. That you can be actively participating and while you're away at school, continuing to sit under the teaching of God's word, a Bible-based and gospel-centered church and building relationships with Christian people because God's spirit changes God's people when we get under God's word. You can't go away from word-based, gospel-centered church relationships for a four-year degree program or a one-year work assignment and not have it kill you spiritually. How long does it take to be away from fellowship in a Bible-believing church before it impacts you spiritually, negatively? Well, here's another way to ask that question for all of us. How long does it take you being away from food before it starts to impact your health negatively? Not very long. And it is no accident that over and over again, God says in the Bible, my word is food for your soul. It is bread for your soul. We can't go away from gospel-centered relationships around the word of God and not have it impact us any more than we can step away from food for four years and not have it impact us. You will be dead long before then. And I've seen it happen over and over. You probably have too. We need to wrap this up. Friends, money, possessions, and the economic system of society, including our society, is one of the things riding on the back of the beast. And Satan uses the economic system as bait to lure people away from pursuing Jesus with a full heart by getting us to serve the gods of education, career path, income, and lifestyle. Again, having a job or a career or going to school or, or, or building a house in, on the coast that's your dream house, those things in and of themselves are good things. They're not bad, but they are dangerous. That's the message of Scripture. That's the vivid imagery of the prostitute gloating with her drunkenness with the blood of the saints in her cup, riding on the back of a satanic beast. The life that Jesus offers us is infinitely more valuable and lasting than any purchase, or any move, or any degree, or any job could ever provide for you. Most of us who are members of this church would agree wholeheartedly with that statement, but when the opportunities come, it starts to get more confusing, doesn't it? I'll invite godly brothers and sisters into that process. My prayer for members of our church is that part of our commitment to one another in membership is to serve as a resource for one another. 
that none of us would fall prey to thinking it, that we are omnicompetent to handle our lives on our own, but that we would delight to say, I'm a citizen of Christ's kingdom, so are you. I'm struggling with how this potential decision is going to impact it. What do you think? And at least have the humility to listen to our brothers and sisters before we decide before God how to serve him best. Because the life that Christ offers us is infinitely more valuable. And he has offered that at his cost, not ours. Seize it. Seize it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the vivid, provocative, crazy imagery that is in this chapter. Because it does fuel the imagination and it makes us think about how we are serving you. And I want to pray, Father God, that you would help each one of us here to be delighted in the opportunities you've given us in activities and in jobs and in homes. You have blessed us richly. These are your blessings. But I pray that members of our church would be characterized by openness with one another within the confines of close relationships that we've already built of trust and that we would live lives that are serving you first and foremost regardless of what may come because you put us on the path to life. And we thank you for that, Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen. We've got an opportunity to respond right now to what we've heard in God's word, both through ongoing singing as well as through receiving communion this morning. You see the tables laid out here. It's our custom at Harvest to receive communion twice every month, the second and fourth Sundays. This morning being the fourth, we're going to do that. The second Sunday, we receive communion in our seats as a little bit more of a personal, uh, reflective time between me and the Lord and the sacrifice of Jesus. The fourth Sunday this morning, we receive corporately. That is, we're all going to get up in just a few moments and come to the tables and receive communion here and then return to our seats. So if you've been with us before, you know how this works. We have four tables uh, uh, situated up here in the front. There are also two tables in the back of the worship center as well as a table up there in the balcony. If you're down here on the main floor, uh, this center aisle is for coming forward as well as the outside aisles. Making these aisles into one-way streets just helps us all get there. So we'd appreciate if you use the center aisle if you're coming forward, the other two aisles if you're going back. You can go to any one of these tables, whichever is closest and most convenient to you, either in the back or in the front. You take the bread, you dip it in the cup, and you eat it. What we are doing when we do this is we are saying to Jesus, these are symbols of his body, the bread, and his shed blood, the cup. And he said, do this as often as you eat and drink this in remembrance of me. He was saying to his church, when you get together, you, you receive communion to proclaim my death. Literally is what the Bible says. Every time we take communion, we are proclaiming Jesus' death. In other words, we're saying the body and blood of Jesus uh, sacrificed on the cross and risen from the grave is where I'm placing all of my hope. My life depends on his sacrifice.